All right, this morning we want to continue studying the life of David. We find ourselves actually in 1 Samuel 28, verses 1 and 2 for a moment, and then we're going to jump into chapter 29. That's our text. The topic we'll find there is this. After David decides to leave the land of Israel to escape his trials, he finds himself the friend of the world and the enemy of God. And so we've titled our message, What a Friend We Leave in Jesus. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for our morning. We always are very excited about opening your word because you've promised that it is powerful, that it's alive that it is able to discern what's going on in our hearts and lives. And I appreciate that, Lord, because so often I don't know what's going on in my heart. I think I do, but then you reveal it to me and you comfort me and you strengthen me and you bless me. And that's our desire this morning, Lord, that each believer would be comforted and strengthened and blessed by the revelation of the word of God in terms of what's going on in our hearts and in our lives. Things are rough out there, Lord, for so many of us, either emotionally or spiritually or physically or financially. We need you to come alongside of us this morning, and we're thankful that you've promised to do it. And Lord, if there's anybody here that isn't a believer, would you reveal that to them, Lord, and would they drop to their knees, spiritually speaking, and give their lives to you? That's our desire, and we know that it's your desire, and that heaven will rejoice as you do that work. We thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name. All right. Grandparenting is the greatest, but if I have to watch the adventures of Milo and Otis one more time, I just might snap. Milo the kitten. How many of you have seen Milo and Otis multiple times? All right. Milo the kitten has a habit of being too curious and getting himself into trouble. He soon finds a pug. Maybe it would be better if there was a real dog in it. Named Otis. And they become unlikely animal friends who go on one mind-numbing adventure after another. People seem to have a soft spot for unlikely friendships, whether animal or human, imaginary or real. Think about some movies or some news programs that you see sometimes. Whenever there's an unlikely pairing, an unlikely friendship, uh, we are drawn to that. There's an unlikely friendship in our text in 1 Samuel 28 and 29. David, the man anointed to be the next king of Israel, was living in enemy territory among the Philistines. He and a Philistine lord, Ashish, had become fast friends. So much so that when it came time for all the Philistine lords to gather for war against Israel, Ashish invited David along to fight with him with the Philistines against Israel unbelievably, David went with him. We'll see how it turns out, but that's not really the point. The point is that David's friendship with Ashish made him the enemy of his people and, of course, of his God. It's all very reminiscent of what you read in the New Testament book of James, where James, making no apology, says, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James was putting his finger on a spiritual adultery in which your choice to befriend the world makes you the enemy of God. For a Christian, friendship with the world is one unlikely friendship we should not have a soft spot for. 
Once again, we can debrief a massive failure, this time David's, in order to plan for our own success. We can see illustrated for us just how serious friendship with the world can be and a little bit of what we mean by that. And so I'll organize my thoughts around two simple points. Number one, you should never become the friend of the world. And number two, you should never become the enemy of the Lord. First of all, we're in chapter 28, verses one and two. You should never become the friend of the world. Let's remind ourselves what David was doing in Philistine territory. Saul had been pursuing him for many years, seeking to kill him. One day, David grew tired of waiting for God to deliver him, so he took matters into his own hands. Even though God had been protecting him from Saul, providing for him in the wilderness, and had promised him victory, David said in his heart, enough is enough, and he retreated to the land controlled by the enemies of Israel. Now, David's bad choice is the first lesson for us if we want to avoid becoming the friend of the world. We should not decide on our own to jump out of our trials. We must endure godly circumstances depending upon God for protection and provision, clinging to his promises. A decision to take matters into our own hands takes us out of the sphere of the kingdom of God and puts us into the world. Now, I hate to always use marriage as an example because people always think I'm talking about them personally. I'm not. It's just the greatest example because it touches so many lives. And so uh, a lot of people, they feel like they're in a marriage. You're a Christian that you feel like you're in a marriage that isn't really made in heaven, if you know what I mean. There's problems in your marriage. There's difficulties. You, you're feeling the stress and the pressure of it. And, and you want to get up. In fact, maybe you've gotten up uh, day after day and said, you know, enough is enough. I just can't take this anymore. However, there's no real grounds for divorce, no biblical grounds. Uh, You know, maybe it's not everything that you thought it was going to be, but, you know, it's not anything really terrible. It's just that you're you're stressed in the situation. You see the divorce rate. So many Christians take the next step. They said enough is enough. I'm leaving this and I'm going out into another territory. And, and that's the kind of thing we're talking about where you would decide that some, you're in a situation that's totally biblical. It's, it's totally the Lord. There's really no way out. God has set the boundaries and he's made them clear. And then you decide on your own, I'm leaving. I'm getting out of this. And what happens is you take yourself out of the sphere of the kingdom of God and the will of God and you put yourself out into the sphere of what we would call the world, the worldly way of thinking. Now, it might help us uh, if we understand this phrase, the world. The world isn't so much a geographical location as it is a spiritual location. When David was enduring his trial, submitting to the Lord, he was acting spiritually as a citizen of God's kingdom under his rule and authority. The moment he decided to escape his trials, he was in the world, even before he physically moved into Philistine territory. Now, you and I, we read this and we think, okay, we look at David and you immediately you're reading this. You think, David, no, don't go into the Philistine territory. That's wrong. Just hang out in your trial. I've read Second Samuel, you're going to be king. And, and, and so we, we have a way of judging David in a sense, not in a bad way, but we're, you know, we wish we could tell him everything's going to be okay. This is what God is doing in, in our lives through him. He, God is saying, hey, no, I've, I'm protecting you, I'm providing for you, I've made you promises. Don't leave this godly circumstance. This is where the kingdom of heaven is made real when you decide to get out of it 
you've fallen back into the world. I could put it like this. When I am thinking, nevertheless, not my will, but God's will be done. I'm in the sphere of God's kingdom. When I say in my heart to God, enough is enough. I've moved from his kingdom rule and into the world. I may not have changed anything. I may, I may still be in my marriage. I may still be in my circumstances. But I'm now out of the rule of the kingdom. And I've begun to think like I used to think in the world about how I can get out of my trouble and be better off and then maybe pick up my relationship with God later on. Now, we saw in chapter 27 that David's decision provided some immediate relief. But now it's going to come crashing down around him. And so verse 1 of chapter 28, Now it happened in those days that the Philistines gathered their armies together for war to fight with Israel. And Ashish said to David, You assuredly know that you will go out with me to battle, you and your men. Ashish recognized that David's friendship with him had made David the enemy of his people and of his God. He said, hey, David, you know you're coming with me to fight because you, you tell me you've been fighting your people already. And, uh, you know, this is going to be a kind of a coup for me. I've got David uh, who thought he was going to be the king of Israel. Now he's fighting for me, the Philistine. When you refuse to endure a godly circumstance, when you leave it, the first thing to go is your witness of the power of God through Jesus Christ. Non-believers conclude a relationship with God is no help in time of trouble. Do you know or have you realized your trials are not just for you or about you? God is using them to grow you, to complete you, that's true. But he is also showing others the wonders of his grace and his mercy and his love. You know, as Christians, we are others oriented. We care about other people. We love them. We want what's best for them. It would be helpful to be reminded when I'm in a trial and a difficulty that other people are looking at me, watching me, watching you and thinking, is God going to make a difference in Gene's life? Is there some kind of a power and a strength and a joy that can be released in this? Because I, I hope there is because I, I may have to go through that or I know people who are going through that. I want to believe that that's real. And so when I might get up and say enough is enough, I can't take it anymore, I should re be reminded that it's not just about me. There's a greater sacrifice to be made for those who are watching, for those who are looking on. And it's not that my success, you know, is, is super important for their eternal life or anything like that. It's not that we don't fail because we do all the time, every day. It's just the reminder that I would be strengthened for the trial because I care so much for others. And part of the problem, you know, when I get up and I say enough is enough, what, what am I doing? I'm thinking about me. Uh, I've got me, myself, and I on my mind, the unholy trinity. And so God says, hey, why don't you think about other people? What would this do to your children? I don't want to offend anybody. I really never want to offend anybody. I'm serious about that. But, you know, a couple of times over the years, I've had people in my office who say, well, we really love our children, but we're going to get this divorce anyway. And I've said to them, you do not love your children, not the way you think you do. Well, no, this would be best for our children. And, you know, I understand that there are extreme situations. I, I know that. I've dealt with terrible things, you know, 
terrible abuses. I've seen children, actually, you know, that have been killed by their parents because of abuse. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about two people. They just don't like each other anymore. They don't want to get along with each other anymore. It's my will against your will, and I'm not going to take it anymore, but I love my children, and this is what's best for them. Really? For you to be a selfish idiot? That's the best thing for your children? For the husband and wife to be two selfish idiots fighting with each other? No, it's not the best for your children. Ask your children if it's the best for your children. They'll say, no, they love you. They don't understand why you can't stay together. They don't understand it. So yes, yes, I know that people like that love their children, but they don't love them with a sacrificial love, not with the agape love that God... They're not willing to say, we're going to have to work this out for the sake of the love that we have for our children and, and get over this personal selfishness. So that's the kind of stuff we're talking about this morning. Verse 2, So David said to Ashish, Surely you know that your servant, uh, what your servant can do And Ashish said to David, therefore, I will make you one of my chief guardians forever. David had gone from being the slayer of the Philistine champion Goliath to being the servant of a Philistine lord. And he was proud of it as if he'd accomplished something. He even got a promotion out of it. Notice David said, you know what I can do. In other words, Ashish, I'm quite the prize and you're smart to see it. It's bad enough to be promoted by the world or in a worldly manner. It's worse when you promote yourself. Pastor Chuck Smith says, and I quote, so many people get in trouble by promoting themselves into positions where God hasn't called them. It's a simple but profound statement. You can't promote yourself and then turn around and say it was God all along. Moses was called by God to be the deliverer of Israel from Egypt. He was, you know, born into that role. As, you know, his mom put him down in the little basket and he floated down the river. I mean, this was the deliverer of Israel. At age 40, he thought he was ready. He wasn't. You remember the episode at age 40? He says, I'm the deliverer of Israel. He saw an Egyptian and an Israeli, uh, a Hebrew, fighting. And so he killed the Egyptian and buried him in shallow sand. That's not the kind of deliverance God was looking for. He wasn't looking for somebody to lead an army of violence against Pharaoh. He was going to take care of Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea. He had it all under control. And so Moses says, here I am, I'm ready. And God says, yeah, we have 40 more years of getting you ready. The very thing that you're doing is what I need to work out of you. This attitude that you have, this this heart that you have that is anything but humble and meek. And so Moses flees out into the desert. Things, you know, he doesn't get voted in as the deliverer. He goes out to the desert and for 40 years he tends sheep. And then God comes to him and says, hey, now you're ready. And he says, oh, no, I'm not. You got the wrong guy. He doesn't want to go, and God has to kind of prod him. And then, of course, the rest of it is beautiful history, isn't it? Moses comes on the scene, a very different Moses. Now his face is glowing, Charlton Heston. No, I'm just kidding. Very different Moses. A merciful Moses, a gracious Moses, a humble Moses, the meekest man on the earth. Now God says, now that's the man that I can use. And so it's a lesson. We need to be careful about self promotion in the spiritual community let others raise you up let god raise you up don't promote yourself because it always turns out badly for you or for others and so in this first section we see that david chose friendship with the world 
Friendship with the world isn't what I thought it was, or at least there's more to it than I thought there was. It isn't having non-believing friends. We should have them in order for them to see Jesus in us. It isn't backsliding. It isn't returning to old habits. It isn't even my flesh lusting after the things of the world. All that might be a part of it, but a big part of it is a decision to abandon God's will in one or more areas of my life. And the moment that I do it, I leave the sphere of his kingdom rule and I am by default now the friend of the world because there's only those two kingdoms. I'm either in the kingdom of heaven, I'm in the kingdom of God in terms of my thinking, submitted to his rule, or I'm back out in the world doing my own thing. Are you in some hardship this morning or some trial? Then endure it as unto the Lord. God is using it to make you more like his son Jesus and to show everyone around you that knowing Jesus makes a difference, a real difference, a difference now and for eternity. Now, chapter 29, you should never become the enemy of the Lord. These chapters are logical, (coughs) excuse me, rather than chronological. Chapter 29 precedes chapter 28 chronologically because in verse 4 of chapter 28, you can read that the Philistines were already camped at Shunem in the Jezreel Valley, whereas in chapter 29, verse 1 and 11, you see they're gathered at Aphek and then they went up to Jezreel. And so the proper order of events seems to be something like this, just so we know where we're at in the story. King Saul of Israel gathered his army at a spring in Jezreel near the foot of Mount Gilboa. At the same time, the Philistines rallied at Aphek in the Sharon Plain. The Philistines advanced along the Via Maris to Shunem at the foot of the hill of Moreh. Saul deployed his forces opposite them on the lower slopes of Mount Gilboa. From there, Saul visited the medium at Endor. That's the story we had last week. The next day, he would engage the Philistines in battle where he and his sons would be killed. And so now we pick up the story in verse 1 of chapter 29. Then the Philistines gathered together all their armies at Aphek. The Israelites camped by a fountain, which is in Jezreel. And the lords of the Philistines passed in review by hundreds and by thousands. But David and his men passed in review at the rear with Ashish. I get the impression, don't you, that David was trying his best to blend in. He was kind of hiding in the back of this review. You and I should not easily blend in with the enemies of God. We should stand out. We should shine in the darkness. We should be front and center exuding the joy of the Lord. Here's another way of putting it. When your non-believing friends or associates think of you, what's the first thing that comes into their minds? You want it to be your commitment to Jesus Christ. Now, the Philistine lords immediately recognized David. He was, uh, he was famous. He was, you know, uh, couldn't hide. And so verse 3, when the princes of the Philistines said, what are these Hebrews doing here? And Ashish said to the princes of the Philistines, is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me these days or these years? And to this day, I found no fault in him since he defected to me. But the princes of the Philistines were angry with him. So the princes of the Philistines said to him, make this fellow return that he may go back to the place where you have appointed for him and do not let him go down with us to the battle, lest in the battle he become our adversary. For with what could he reconcile himself to his master if not with the heads of these men? Is this not David of whom they sang to one another in dances saying Saul has slain his thousands 
and David his ten thousands. David had won mighty victories as a youth in simple dependence upon God. Now he was older, lots more spiritual experience to draw from, and he finds himself at the lowest point of his spiritual life thus far. I've been saved over 30 years since February of 1979. That doesn't mean I automatically have more faith or automatically am more mature or that I have grown in the Lord. It doesn't mean I could not suddenly walk out of the sphere of God's kingdom rule and become a friend of the world and make myself the enemy of God. Discipleship isn't a career path that gets easier with less serving and less sacrifice. If I'm not serving more, sacrificing more with each step on my walk, then I might really be at a low point when I think I'm riding high. The Christian life is about love, not longevity. I need to be, I want to be more in love with Jesus every day than the day before, and so on until I see His face. And that works itself out when I serve and sacrifice for Him more and more and more. I've been saying this for years and it's true. I think I have to say it because I need to hear it because we're not really wired that way. Out in the world, you work hard to work less. Uh, you, you, you plan for your retirement so that you can do what you really want to do. And that's great. I'm glad that the world is set up that way. And it's wonderful when that can work out. The Christian life is not set up that way. You work to do more. He who is faithful in the little things, what happens to that person? God gives him greater things to do. Discipleship is always growing. It's always taking a new step of faith. It's always doing more. And, and I, that's what we want to be about. This is when, in our better moments as believers when we're praying and seeking the Lord and, and you know we're mimicking the prayers of the Bible and we're like Isaiah and we say, Lord, here I am, send me. Make me a servant, Lord, humble in me. This is really who we are. This is what we want to do. And we get excited about that. And then life comes along. Life has a way of kind of knocking us down and then you have to pick yourself up and you get knocked down, you have to pick yourself up. The devil doesn't want you to be serving more, to be sacrificing more. And sometimes this worldly attitude creeps in. Have already done that. I don't need to do that. Let's raise up some younger Christian to do that. No, you need to always be doing something new, something more, something deeper, some greater sense of sacrifice. And you know why? Because you'll never really find joy and fulfillment unless you're doing that. God's made us a certain way. And, and a lot of times people, if they're honest, their Christian life's not really going that well. They're Christians, they know they're saved, but they feel like something's missing. So they go from church to church or Bible teacher to Bible teacher or event to event or whatever it is. When in reality, God would say, look, just take a new step of faith. Give more today than you gave yesterday. Sacrifice more today than you sacrificed yesterday. And I'll be there to fill you and to bless you because he who is given uh, little when he's faithful in it, God gives him more to do. And so it's an opposite way of thinking. Uh, and once we get that, then it becomes exciting. And we start to see God opening up doors and doing new things. Verse 6, Then Ashish called David and said to him, Surely as the Lord lives, you have been upright and you're going out and you're coming in with me and the army is good in my sight. For to this day I have not found evil in you since the day of your coming to me. Nevertheless, the Lord's do not favor you. Therefore, I return now and go in peace that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. 
We are to be people of integrity, of course, with good reputations among non-believers. But in giving characteristics of the kingdom to his 12 disciples, Jesus also warned us and he said, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. For so did they to their fathers, uh, so did their fathers to the false prophets, excuse me. You are to be respected for your character and commitment to Christ, not for your worldly accomplishments. God has placed you somewhere in the physical world so that you can affect it spiritually. You may accomplish much in the world, but nothing will be greater than maintaining your testimony for the Lord. And so verse 8, David said to Ashish, but what have I done? To this day, what have you found in your servant as long as I have been with you that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my Lord, the king? Now, you think this would have been a great relief to David. Was he really going to fight against his future subjects, his own people? I mean, he had put himself in quite a quandary here. Instead, he protested that he was being misunderstood and mistreated. When a believer has made themselves the enemy of God, discernment goes out the window, and so does honest self-evaluation. David was spared from having to face the battlefield decision. But it shows us that when we choose friendship with the world, it puts us in a position to fight against other believers. And we don't want to do that. Uh, Obviously, we want to maintain the spirit of unity in the bond of peace. And so... uh, Friendship with the world, enmity with God, and it puts us at odds with other believers. God gave David a way out. Doesn't mean God condoned any of David's lies. We should never sin thinking that it will be okay in the end because God's grace will abound. But here we see that God continues to work on us and for us even when we sin in order to bring us back. He loves you and I that much. In some small area of life or in some huge area of our life, because we're human and we're stuck with this body of flesh until the Lord comes for us, we're going to move out of the sphere of the kingdom of God and into friendship with the world, into our old way of thinking. And the best thing that could happen is that we would listen to something like this, read it in the scripture, that God would use it to reveal what we're doing, and then we would realize that he has such grace and such mercy and so much love for us that the only reason he's showing us is so that we can return and get back on track with him. And you, you and I, we're a people that need to be returning all the time. Repentance isn't just something that we do when we first get saved. Uh, there's a struggle. Have you, have you realized that there's a struggle with, with the old nature, with the sin nature, with the flesh? Paul the Apostle did, the, probably the greatest Christian that ever lived, or at least that we know of. And in Romans 7, he said, The things I want to do with all of my spiritual heart, I find that I don't do them. And the things that I don't want to do as a child of God, I find sometimes that I do them. And then at the end of the chapter, he sort of throws his hands up and he says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin and death? And then he goes into Romans 8, which talks about the spirit-filled life. And he says, essentially, God will show me when that's taking place and he will revive me and tell me that I can have victory and that I can walk in this victory. And this is the Christian life. And we we may not, you know, have to go through that on Sunday morning. We say, oh, how are you doing? You say, well, I'm in Romans 7 right now, trying to get into Romans 8. 
But on a day-to-day basis, on a week-to-week basis, that's the struggle. That's the dilemma. And what you need to know this morning is that if you're David, if you've walked out of some situation, if you knew that that trial was from God, that circumstance was from God, you were in the sphere of the kingdom of God, but you decided to become the friend of the world again by taking matters into your own hand, you have to understand that God looks upon that and He says, I'm going to bring you back. I love you too much to lose you. I want you back. And uh, things may get worse. I mean, David was put in a very, very sad dilemma to where he, he realized that he was going to have to fight against his own people. What's he going to do? God worked all of that out because he loved him and he loves you. Verse 9, Then Ashish answered and said to David, I know that you are as good in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the princes of the Philistines have said, He shall not go up with us to the battle. Now therefore, arise early in the morning with your master's servants who have come with you, and as soon as you are up early in the morning and have light, depart. I wonder if David was at all pricked in his heart by the words of Ashish. The Philistine Lord had nothing but praise for him, when all the while David had been deceiving Ashish about where and who he had been raiding. His testimony was based on a false front that he put up and that he worked hard to maintain. If you're here for our study in chapter 27, you know that David from his Philistine stronghold in Ziklag was going and raiding other enemies of Israel. But he was telling Ashish that he was raiding the Hebrews. And so David, Ashish says, man, you're, you're the greatest thing since sliced bread, David. You're the greatest thing since bullets, however you want to put it. You're, you're, you're like an angel of God, a breath of fresh air. You're the greatest and all the while, David is lying and deceiving and hoping that he can maintain this charade and that it won't fall down around him. And now it is. Be yourself. Be genuine. You don't need to impress others, believers or non-believers, with how spiritual you are. I'm always a little suspicious of folks who talk about their tremendous spiritual discipline whose counsel is always based on what you ought to be doing for God rather than what He has already done and yet wants to accomplish in you. This is always hard to talk about because I don't want anybody to get the impression that devotions are you know, unimportant or wrong or prayer or any of the disciplines of the Christian life. They flow from a heart of love. But so often when you go to a person for advice and say, you know, I, this is happening or that's happening, and they immediately say, well, you just need to get up a half an hour early every morning and, and get into your devotions. And, and you need to uh, tithe or double tithe or whatever it is, you know, and you need to do this and you need to do that and you need to do that. And you start to think, if I do all these things, then God has to bless me. And I look at that other person who's telling me, I think, well, surely you must be doing those things and God is blessing you. And so this becomes the Christian life. It's a life of doing things for God. And all the while, God is saying, I've done everything for you. It is finished, Jesus said on the cross. My grace is sufficient for you. I'm going to fill you with my spirit. Remember a few years ago, I was listening to Pastor Chuck Smith and he, uh, again, not wanting to be misunderstood, but he said, you know, it's great to get up and have devotions. He said, but every now and then he'll have something happen. His alarm clock doesn't go off or something. He gets up. He's missed his devotions. He doesn't have his regular routine. And he says, and God will give me the greatest day I've ever had blessing me left and right. And at the end of the day, he says, you know, Chuck, it's about me. It's not about you. 
I didn't bless you today because you had your devotions and because you spent your half hour in prayer and all of that. You need to do that because you want to do that. But if you have to be told to do those things, then it's all outward. It's, it's not from the heart anyway, and it can't make any difference. And so we want to be about what the Lord has done for us so that it will break our hard hearts, so that we'll weep before him and then say, Lord, whatever you want, I'm ready. In verse 11, David and his men rose early to depart in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines, and the Philistines went up to Jezreel. Seeing that David had dodged a bullet, or at least a spear, I guess, in his context, but we will see that when he and his troops return to their Philistine city of Ziklag, they find the Amalekites have raided it and carried away captive their wives and children. David's men want to stone him to death. Finally, at that low point, David strengthens himself in the Lord and moves back into a kingdom way of thinking. Now, all of us in our natural state are the enemies of God. Colossians 1.21 says that we were once alienated from God. We were his enemies. But Romans 5.10 declares when we were enemies, uh, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. A couple of verses before that you read Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his love towards us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Born sinners, the enemies of God, He sent His only begotten Son to take our place as our substitute. Jesus went to the cross where He took upon Himself the punishment and penalty for our sins that we might be reconciled to God and be enemies no more. Have you been saved at the cross? I know most of you have. After you're saved, you can again act like God's enemy. Just read James 4.4. 4. It doesn't at all mean that you forfeit your salvation. Not at all. But it's still very serious and to be avoided. What a friend we leave in Jesus is not the tune that we want to go around humming in these last days. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these things. I pray, Lord, that we've brought your spirit out of these defeats in David's life so that uh, we can see the person and the persons that we want to be and that we're called to be. And that behind it all, Lord, we understand what you have done for us to make it possible to walk in the spirit, to endure rather than escape godly circumstances, to have submissive hearts that say, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. To recognize when we are walking in our own will, promoting ourselves, doing our own thing. Because none of that, Lord, represents Christ, not to others, not even to ourselves. We love you so much, Lord, but it pales in comparison to your love for us. We're all at different places in our walk today. But wherever we're at, Lord, you love us with an everlasting love. And your love has drawn us to you and it continues to do that. And I pray that today each one of us, to a certain extent, would fall in love with you again. That we would remember, Lord, your great love for us and want to love you more and more and more. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.